Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with the China Project. Subscribe to Access from the China Project to get access. Access to not only our great daily dispatch newsletter, but to all of the original reporting on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, we've got essays, we've got editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Sometimes it's hard to get the right guest with specialist insider knowledge uh, uh, to talk about a specific story that is in the news lately. This is not one of those times. As many of our listeners will know, a company called CapVision made the headlines last week with stories in nearly every major English language outlet about how CapVision's offices were raided by authorities, though, as we'll hear, this actually took place several months ago, uh, how this was part of a broader crackdown on, on consultancies in China coming on the heels, as it did, of the much-talked-about raid on Bain, and with some claiming that it was related to the, the new anti-espionage law. And in any case, how this was surely scaring off foreign firms and part of this you know, newly intolerable, hostile environment toward foreign businesses in China. As it happens, the CEO of the China Project, the company that I work for, he worked for CapVision in a very senior capacity. Uh, CapVision was the largest private investment research house in China, and my guest today, who's also my boss, uh, served as chief compliance officer from 2012 to 2015 and managing director for Europe and North America from 2013 to 2015. So not surprisingly, he's been doing the rounds on various media outlets to provide context and, and hopefully to correct a lot of the inaccuracies that he says have been out there uh, in the way that this raid and its significance are being reported. So Bob Guterma joined the China Project, which was then called SubChina, about four years ago, I think. And, and last year he was promoted to CEO. And he's just been really great to work with. I am really happy to have this opportunity to actually have him on Seneca as a guest. Bob, man, welcome at long last to the show. Well, thank you. As we were talking about before the the recording began, there's only one way a, a chief compliance officer gets famous, and this is pretty much it. So uh, <laughs> never mind that I've gone on to do things beyond compliance, but uh, here we are anyway. Never mind that being on Seneca doesn't make you famous either, Bob. Uh, right, yeah. No, it also saves me that we're here right now because I was going to have to at some point make the awkward kind of uh, revealing egomaniacal move of demanding to be on the show. And now I don't have to do that. I can just be here for uh, – I can be here for a legitimate purpose. So um, let's get going. The editorial independence of this program would have prevented me from knuckling under <laughs> yeah, your, your Yeah, blah, blah, man. blah, blah, anyway, blah, but. yeah. Um, All right. Anyway, so let's get let's jump in. I mean, start with I think the the basics about CapVision. What is CapVision? Maybe you can give us a quick history of the company. Tell us what they do and and how big they've gotten, and maybe some examples of of some of the companies in the U.S. that have business models that are similar to CapVision. Sure. CapVision was founded in Shanghai, China, in two thousand six by Roger Xu, who is the current CEO 
and largest shareholder, to my understanding, based on public records that I've looked at in the past day or two uh, from China. And Kai Hong, who was the CEO when I was there and ran it up until about 2015, around the time that I left. The company is an expert network, a business model, Mm -hmm. a research model, first pioneered in New York by GLG, the Garrison Lehrman Group. Um, I actually shouldn't say that the research model was pioneered by them because it's existed for a long time in legal circles, medical circles, and other places where you seek people with specific expertise to fill in gaps in your understanding. They popularized it and brought it to bear for investment research, management consulting, et cetera. GLG is the granddaddy of the industry, uh, by far the largest globally, although there are a handful of other large Western players. CapVision saw them making early inroads into China and the founders were management consultants and investment bankers and said, you know what? I think we can do a better job than these foreign players in China because this is a very human focused business at the end of the day. You're reaching out to people and getting them to trust you and trust your clients. And uh, at that time in China, you had to educate them on what this research model and business model even meant. People would pick up the phone And you would say, um, you know, this is who we are. And they'd be like, I'm not buying anything. They're like, no, 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 no. We want to pay you. And they'd be like, well, that's even worse. Click, you know, uh, you know, it just was such a foreign idea (laughs) that you would get paid for your expertise. And so that's what CapVision is. That's when it was started. Yeah. So I worked in a reasonably senior position at a a listed Chinese internet company. And I was always getting calls and and, and, um, being asked by companies I won't say that it was GLG, but companies like GLG to to talk about these things. And I always was extremely uncomfortable. I said, well, no, I mean, the money sounds great, but I mean, I can't disclose the kind of information. That you, and so I, I did one. I did one and was extremely careful. But the whole time I, I noticed all they tried to do was to, to get me to say things that I knew I shouldn't ever say. And it was extremely uncomfortable. And I, I told them that. I said, look, you know. I told you really, you know, at the outset of this thing that I was never going to, I wasn't going to go into any detail. I was going to talk at, you know, very high level strategic kind of, anyway, it was, it was very, very uncomfortable. Uh, so that's what they do. Yeah. I mean, isn't that sort of the model that they, they try to entice people right up to the line to violate SEC or CSRC regulations? <laughs> you know, it's funny to hear you summarize it that way. I don't doubt you, uh, were uh, exposed to clients like that, especially working for a hot listed company, tech stock, you know, uh, that certainly attracts that kind of attention. I would point out, however, that the vast majority of the experts in these networks don't work for listed companies. The private sector, the, the truly private, not publicly traded part of the economy in most countries is much larger than the publicly traded side. Sure, sure. And so in that sense, right. SEC violations specifically or CSRC violations um, aren't even the bulk of w- – wouldn't apply to the bulk of interactions taking place on these platforms. At the same time, okay. there is something to what you said in the sense that if what you were looking for was widely available or available through desktop research or common knowledge, then the whole thing wouldn't be necessary. 
the whole point is that you're getting really frontline information from the people who know um, on a time frame that you could never achieve with desktop research. You know, the information hasn't propagated out in in the real world or on the internet yet. And so I was thinking about this before our call and GLG and a lot of its Western peers went through a period of great trouble in the early 2010s uh, due to insider trading violations here in the US. Mm. Now, I haven't brushed up on the details of those cases in quite a while, but if I recall correctly, GLG ultimately did not bear any legal responsibility for what happened because their compliance program uh, makes very clear to both parties, the client and the expert, what their responsibilities are and uh, draws the lines and says, don't cross them. And the people, the individuals to those engagements decided to cross the lines anyway. And therein lies the rub is that while GLG may not have done anything wrong, the brand damage was huge. And I think we're seeing something a little bit similar here with CapVision. They weren't actually pressed with any specific charges under Chinese law. No one from CapVision has been detained. The expert, the expert who violated their confidentiality to their employer in defense and other government related areas, they're the ones in jail. The foreign clients were not even named, uh, although they were specified to be foreign. Um, so you have this situation where just by the mechanics of what is happening, individuals in many different places and engaging with clients in many different places, all the motives are sort of unknown. Lines may be drawn, but how, how they're always kept in mind and always respected is, is something else. And so if you ask me today on GLG's network, is insider trading or violation of any number of different forms of confidentiality obligation being violated? Hopefully without um, you know slandering GLG, I would say mathematically the likelihood is uh, quite high just by the sheer number of engagements taking place and the way that this works. The engagements with this particular expert or experts isn't just about insider trading, though, right? Uh, the allegation, anyway, is that it touches on matters of defense sensitivity, of national security. Uh, I mean, isn't that something that pretty much any government would, would object to, right? I mean, maybe it wouldn't get framed in terms of going after international businesses, but, you know, rather just about, about run-of-the-mill national security concerns. Yeah, so... That's one of the critical things that I think the mainstream media has wholly avoided. I wouldn't even say they've got it wrong. It just hasn't even come up, which is the fundamental allegations or the the who, what, when, where, and how of, of the situation. The Chinese releases, both from the government and from CapVision itself, detail that it was related to government information and in the second case, specifically military information. Mm -hmm. And if that happened in America, and by the way, it does happen sometimes. I mean, researchers and scientists at different American companies have been busted for uh, transferring or selling or even just trying to transfer or sell secrets uh, related to the government or military to foreign powers, including China, but others as well over the years. Sure. And um, it, you know, if that happened anywhere, if it happened in America, the FBI would surely raid those offices, investigate the bejesus out of them, and press charges wherever they were able to. And none of the articles on the CapVision situation 
have even paid attention to the allegations. Now, they haven't said that the allegations are bogus or made up. They haven't said anything about them. And I find that curious. You know, if what happened really happened, then why is the reaction being interpreted as, uh, you know, a foreboding signal of Beijing's stance on foreign business in China? Well, I think the answer is clearly because it, you know, happened right after the Bain case and after the Mintz case. So maybe we can talk a little bit about those and whether they actually are connected in any way. I mean, what do we know about Bain, which is, of course, a very big global consultancy, why its offices were raided? Is there any connection at all? Sure. Well, I I want to zoom out and there's one other base fact that I want to kind of get straight here. A lot of the reporting on the Capvision case, especially the early reporting, referred to it as an international or in many pl- cases, even as a US company, a US consulting firm in mm. China. And it is a Chinese company through and through. And you can check. Okay. I mean, it's registered. I thought it had headquarters in the US as well. No, no it, uh, there is one line on it, the English version of its website that says that it has headquarters in New York and Shanghai. But if you switch to the Chinese version of their own website, it does not mention New York. And if you look at any interviews or older profiles of the company or just do more research than like the first five links on Google, you can figure out pretty quickly that it was established in Shanghai. The overwhelming majority of its employees are in Shanghai. Its CEO and key executive team have always been in Shanghai. The owners of the company are entirely Chinese. And this is not available in the public record, but just if you talk to people or even look at the companies, um, actually, you know what? I take that back. It is in the public record. If you look at their Hong Kong IPO filing papers that they didn't really get close enough to pull off, and now I think it's probably off the table, uh, like something like 80% or more of their revenue is all from within mainland China. So that's you know a pretty mm. lopsided co-headquartered company. And, and in any case, I can say when I was there until 2015, uh, there was not even the language existing in marketing materials saying that they're co-headquartered anywhere. So it's a Chinese company. And I think this is the number one thing to point out in terms of the whole narrative. Why well, it's unlike Bain. Well, yeah. So that, that that's exactly right. Is if you, if you, you asked, how does this fit into the trend of what's going on? And I think the first problem is that it's not a foreign company. And so a lot of the reporting was in a, you know, continuation of its crackdown on foreign companies in China, uh, the government has raided the offices of Capvision, an international consultancy. That's not true. It's a Chinese consultancy. What about the the people who were actually who were actually detained? Were they representatives of an American or a foreign company? Uh, so that's another good point. Is that the only two people that we know of from official announcements? And I've talked to probably a dozen people close to directly involved in this. The only two people who have actually been detained or had formal charges pressed against them are the experts. Those were Chinese nationals. Right. Capvision itself has, you know, they've been they've been given the full treatment in terms of publicity, and I don't mean that in a good way. You know, they've been forced to publish all the apologetic letters and talk about how much they're going to uphold relevant laws and regulations going forward, et cetera, et cetera. But there's been no penalty imposed upon them. And the foreign clients that were involved weren't even mentioned by name. So this really is focused on the China side of the equation for now. And so I think that leads me to the second part of this, which is Mintz and Bain, et cetera. They are foreign companies. So there's a difference. 
But we don't know enough about what happened in those cases. In the case of Bain, again, no specific charges, no penalties. No one was arrested, according to any of the reporting I've read. There were some conversations that took place, and one piece mentioned that some computers may have been taken, although I couldn't find that anywhere else. And it appeared to have been walked back and later reporting by that same outlet. So basically what we know about Bain is that the authorities came by to have a conversation. And to anyone who's worked in China in management consulting or due diligence or even investigations, and I think probably also many other industries, including different types of manufacturing or more you know, mundane things, that's, that would have been a slow Tuesday in 2009. You know, that, the, the Chinese government coming over to have a talk would have, it, it's literally called being invited to tea. You know, you know that. And we have an entire column called invited to tea with Jeremy um, because it's like a thing. It's a thing that happens in China. You get invited for tea and it's not always good, but it's not always bad. And it's just kind of part of doing business there. And you even grow right. to welcome it or look forward to it if you're in that industry, because it's your chance to check in and and be like, hey, any changes since last time? Hey, we're uh, doing something kind of like this right now. Is that cool? <laughs> you know, it's like it's your chance to ask. I assure you, I have not grown to the point where I've welcomed being invited to tea yet, but maybe I'm just not. Yeah, I mean, so up behind the ears. I guess welcoming it is maybe too strong, but it's, you know, look, <laughs> it's, it's part of doing business in China in any case. So I don't want to make light of what happened to Bain. The fact that it got into the newspapers when something like what I'm describing probably has happened, you know, very often to Bain over the years and didn't get in the papers means that something probably was different about this visit, but none of it's been reported. And so we just really don't know. And then the other case here is Mintz, and we really don't know what happened there. But again, I would point out five people were arrested. They were all Chinese. They worked for Mintz. I've talked to a number of people in the due diligence or investigation space, and the kind of word on the street is, and I don't think this has been reported, although it, it may have been is that they were doing research related to the UFLPA, the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, okay. and that some of their work somehow got into a public-facing document of their client. Uh. And that kind of initiated a public blowback cycle that got to the Chinese government and then got them in trouble. And you know, again, without knowing exactly what their people were doing on the ground there, you know, were they contacting people in government? Were they doing site visits? I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I will say that there have always been very clear no-fly zones in that space, in the due diligence or investigation space in China. And there's been very well-demarcated gray zones as well, you know, places where you can maybe get away with stuff, but you probably shouldn't. And for a long time now, any major global player control risks, FTI, Kroll, et cetera, they don't get in trouble. And they do you know, orders of magnitude more work than a company like Mintz does in China. And they, know, and they don't get in trouble because they know what to do and they know what not to do. Sure. And so when I've talked to anybody in that space or even close to it, people at large management consultancies, you know, the McKinsey, Bain, BCGs of the world, but also the control risk, Kroll, FTIs of the world, none of them 
are even considering pulling their people out of China. Like they're not that worried about it because the general view on the street is Mince was probably doing something they shouldn't have been doing and they got in trouble for it, which is not surprising if you've done this for long enough. So after Mintz and after Bain, Capvision, I mean, come on, they, they came in for the full CCTV treatment, as, we, as we've said, right? I mean, authorities do this for a reason. They do it to send a message. What, Bob, what, what do you think this message that they're trying to send is? Who is it directed toward? And, I mean, shouldn't they have sort of assumed that there would be a freakout by, by Western companies? So I, 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 I can imagine I would have seen the optics of, of how that would have looked. If we zoom out, there is no denying the fact that the overall direction of travel for doing business in China and specifically doing information-related businesses in China, such as consulting or market research, is bad. The direction of travel is in the negative direction. It is getting harder to do it. There are more risks. The risks are less clear or uh, easy to avoid than they were in the past. And yet, there's enough different about these cases that it leaves me with the feeling, having done this for a long time now, has anything really changed or are we just becoming more aware of the risks or are the risks just kind of presenting themselves in rapid fashion? I mean, what happened with Capvision, again, if it happened in America and certainly if it happened in China at any other time in the past decade should also result in the same exact thing happening. The Bain visit, until we know more, it just sounds like a super intense conversation. The Mince thing, again, investigations firm have been getting in very high profile trouble in China every two to three years for decades. There's tons of examples of other investigations firms getting in trouble in China over the years. And uh, so in a way, there's nothing really new about what happened to Mince, except for its temporal proximity to the other two, which do come at the time of the espionage law. Yeah, so is there a connection to the espionage law that you you can think of? I mean, are you... I mean, I read the espionage law, the new version, and everyone's like, oh, it's been expanded and it's so vague. And I read it and I'm like, this sounds pretty much like what we all assume the espionage law meant all along. (laughs) You know, it's like you do something that crosses the government in China and we will um, get you uh, in trouble. And, And they've just kind of like added a few more words to it. I, I, I don't know. Like nothing about it really strikes me as fundamentally different. Um, mm. It's almost like they wrote down a few things that they've run into a lot in the past decade of doing what they were doing anyway, like documents and emails. We better put that one in there just so like no one's surprised. Because uh, again, like de facto, what it is now is also what it's always been. I, I don't see too much of a difference in, in how it it would apply to people. Yeah. In last week's show, uh, Jeremy Dom and, and Kendra Schaefer both talked about how Chinese laws are, you know, because it's a single party state, you don't need to, you know, run it through the entire laborious process of, you know, uh, congressional approvals and everything. Every time you want to amend the law, there's nobody's stop you from doing it. They just sort of, you know, they, they threw stuff at the wall, saw what st- stuck and what didn't. And then, you know, they made adjustments along the way. That seems to be the case. With the, with the espionage law as well. I think, though, if I may offer my own surmise of why this and these other stories, you know, why Capvision and Bain and Mitz and, and other things, why they popped, why they drew so much attention, was because it seemed to be happening at a time when 
with another hand, you know, China was trying to kind of woo back foreign business. I mean, at least that's what some of the message certainly has been, you know, coming from Li Chang, you know, the, the new premier. Uh, he's been making all sorts of, of sort of foreign business-friendly declarations. You know, a bunch of, you know, COVID-related restrictions have been dropped. Uh, Xi Jinping himself, I mean, he has directed that pained rictus that passes for a smile uh, at the Western business community from time to time. I'm not sure if what kind of an effect that has, but uh, when he appears to crack down so hard with one hand while, you know, trying to uh, be generous with the other, it, it does look odd, right? I mean, I think it, it, it just sort of makes the crackdown pop out in stark relief. As I said, the general direction of travel for doing business and doing research and consulting work in China is in the negative direction. And beyond just saying it's in the negative direction, notwithstanding all the things I've said to kind of push back against the mainstream narrative, we can also say that it's accelerating or that it has accelerated slightly in the past couple months. But again, I, I just don't feel like there's anything that you can't do now that you actually could or would be well advised to have done, you know, six months ago. I think the same things are inadvisable now as were inadvisable then. And maybe what we're just seeing is like, they're actually going to, you know, ramp up enforcement or something like that. I would also point out that there's a lot of crackdowns, if you will, if we can use that term, uh, to apply to America as well. There's a lot of those things happening in America right now. I mean, just a few days ago, Rockwell Automation was, I, I don't know exactly what happened if they were, uh, had charges pressed against them or just an investigation launched against them by the DOJ for potentially exposing U.S. national security information vis-a-vis their operations in China. Rockwell Automation is a large uh, auto supply chain company. And I don't know what got them in trouble. And I'm not even saying that there aren't risks. I'm not pushing back against the fact that there might be risks and that Rockwell Automation is exposing U.S. national security risks. I'm just saying that like whatever they're getting in trouble for is probably something they've been doing for a fairly long time. I highly doubt it's like something they just started to do overnight. And would we say that that's you know, the U.S. being unfriendly to foreign businesses or to doing business in general? You could find so many examples from the past year where things have gotten more difficult to do business in America or you know, doing business with America globally, maybe not even in America. The Inflation Reduction Act sent major shockwaves through Europe. And, and was seen as very sure. unfriendly. And so what I'm getting at here is not to draw some kind of parity between the US and China, not at all. I'm just saying, I think we're in much more complicated times than we've ever been in, uh, in, in you know, our memories, perhaps even, at least recent memories. It's harder to do business anywhere right now. And all governments are grasping at straws for how to keep economic growth going, keep the story of globalization going, and yet managing the risks that are endemic and systematic to the world we now live in. Everybody's trying to figure it out, and all governments are bringing the axe down wherever they can find a reasonable place to try to do so, and it feels arbitrary sometimes. The fact that it took place, what, what I think you said something like six months ago, like that's when, when the actual uh, the raid... The, as Cap I understand Vision. it, the visits to Catvision's actual offices were about six months ago. And it's kind of funny because if you uh, look in the video footage, there's like the, the camera you're watching from. And then there's like another camera person behind the person at the desk being forced to sign the apology letter. You know, it's like 
they had a makeup team there and everything. It, it wasn't like it wasn't <laughs> like body cam footage during a raid. It was very well orchestrated and very well planned. Um, I think interestingly, Capvision employees and team members, as a result, have had a lot of time to to prep for this, and this, this wasn't a surprise to them. Um, and uh, it's just we're all learning about it now. So, I mean, I, I wonder, though, well, if, if everyone corrected their story is to say, you know, Capvision is actually a Chinese company and actually the timeline is different than, than it seems to be. This actually happened six months ago, whereas, you know, the Bain and the Mince raids happened in, what was it, March and April, respectively, or something. Um, would this actually take the chill out of it, of things for Western companies or, or even for investors who are, are, you know, looking at upping their exposure to China? I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying it wouldn't make much of a difference. The chill's already in yeah, the air. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I'm pushing back against a lot of it to say, you know, basically I'm Just saying that truth the, the mainstream right? media <laughs> is bending over backwards to fit each event to the overall narrative of the CCP cracking down on foreign business in China. And I am pushing back against that in its simple version and in the kind of like most severe version. But even as you were talking, I was like, no, like I know where Kaiser's going with this, but like I don't, actually think we shouldn't pay attention to this. I, the raids may have taken place six months ago, but the TV special aired now. <laughs> right, <laughs> and the TV I mean. special made specific mention of cleaning up the industry. And so there exactly. is something going on. I'm just saying it's not quite so simple as a CCP-led crackdown on foreign business. I do think it's kind of funny because you you had, um, I think Chingang was in Europe at the exact same time. Uh, saying like, come on back to China. Right. The yeah, the water's great. great. Yeah. We got you know a new pool heater. You're gonna love it. Like it's really fun right now. And meanwhile, this is raging in in the media, and uh, it, it can leave you wondering if this was a left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing situation. But I don't know, man. It's all so unpredictable. You could also have seen. Let's pretend there's a working group of five or six people that are like in charge of coordinating this stuff, and they had a meeting, and someone brought this up, and someone else at the meeting might have been like, "Nah, Capvision's a Chinese company. Who's going to care about that?" <laughs> you know, like it, it could have been that simple. And they're like, "Let's air the special anyway." Even you know, Chin's uh, still over there in Europe. Uh, who knows how these things really work? And so you you alluded to it earlier saying, wouldn't they have known that this would look really bad and blow up in their face? And I don't know. I was quite surprised to see this blow up the way it did. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has raised flags over heightened risk now. I think the risk premium is certainly raised now for Western companies, yeah? I mean, is this this is doesn't strike me as a an overreaction necessarily in light of what we were look when the stock how do you when the stock market craters everybody says oh everybody's pricing in the risk but they say that after the fact you know and it's like the people (laughs) who made money made it by getting out at the top kind of seeing what was happening uh before it happened and it's really easy to look back and everybody else is like oh yeah everything's changed now and it's like well duh, you know? And, and I think that we're kind of doing that with China. Again, when I talk to people in the space who have been in the space for decades, who are still in the space, and when I say the space, I mean everything from Bain to Mints to Catvision, any of those types of companies, no one's really that surprised by what's going on. It, mm. The people who have been doing this for a long time at a very high level aren't surprised. 
there is something going on at the same time. It's a both and. I, I know I'm being a little annoying and evasive here. Like I'm like, no, it's not quite as bad as everyone says. And then I'm like, well, no, but it's definitely bad enough. We need to pay attention. Like I, I'm, I do, I am being very demanding here, but I, I just think it's too simplistic to say this is the CCP sending a big negative signal to foreign businesses. And it would also be wrong to say that there's nothing going on. Right. You got to find that, that, that spot in the middle. So we've established that there is some form of a trend going on here in terms of it becoming harder or less uh, clear how exactly to run a research and consulting business in China at the moment. But we've also talked about how there are many things about the current situation that don't match the overall trend that the media is currently uh, really into about the CCP cracking down on foreign businesses. And I think to really prove this point, what we should do is zoom the lens out even further and look at this within the context of the past three years and not just the past three months. And what I mean by that is, let's just think back to the days of Ant Financial's imminent IPO getting canceled, the DD listing sure. having the plug pulled on them you know, right afterwards, uh, the uh, overnight deletion of the private education industry, um, the extremely invasive constraints on video gaming and other parts of the digital economy. Sure. All of these things affected Chinese companies way more than they affected foreign companies operating in China. And the intention Sure, 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 that's true. Yeah, and the intention of all these things was not to hurt the foreign companies operating in the space. It was to clean up or to achieve other government goals than just unbridled business growth. And so I think if we look at the past three months within the context of the past three years, we would see that, yeah, there is a trend, <laughs> but I don't think it's unduly targeting foreign companies. I think that the Chinese government has a very long to-do list of things that they think have gotten away from them or gotten out of control or are in need of regulation or a message being sent, and they are going down that checklist. And we are now at the research and consulting part of the checklist. And what's next? <laughs> that's the question. I <laughs> yeah. mean, that's the real question. I mean, anyone who can call that one, you know, I don't know if they could make money off it per se, but they could at least be a damn good reporter. So, Bob, give us a sense of what your role was as compliance officer and, you know, what, what the thinking was. I mean, because when I hear about expert networks, I feel like there's just sort of, it's an inherently kind of risky thing. I mean, you you are, as I suggested, trying to cajole or, or in, entice people to divulge information that isn't publicly available, right? And so, uh, I mean, compliance is going to be a challenge. So tell us a little bit about that. Look, I was hired by CapVision in the first place to be their first chief compliance officer. And this was based right. on my years of experience at the British Risk Consultancy Control Risks, where we help global companies implement uh, compliance programs of, of different shapes and sizes. And the task I was given was to build us a world-class compliance program, not a world-class compliance program with Chinese characteristics per se, but a truly world-class compliance program. I was given basically unlimited budget, or I can't remember ever having been told no when it came to budget requests. We hired a top, 
top of the market New York based law firm that had a lot of on the ground experience in China and Hong Kong as well. And we built the program to the exact standards of all the other global research firms that we could find, and then some because we were doing it a couple years after they had done it. So there was room to improve even. The intention was to build the real deal, and we actually did that. And I know some of the people still involved in that program today. And from my conversations with them, there's no indication that they officially shifted course or gave up on that effort to be a truly world-class company. So again, there's just a lot of endemic risk to running an expert network model. And I think that it was on the experts and the clients to perhaps be more cognizant of that. And, you know, maybe for all of us to accept that just an expert network by its very nature is going to expose people to these types of risks. So you've done a spate of interviews now with quite a number of media outlets who've reached out to you unsurprisingly. Um, And look, Bob, you're not a blushing virgin when it comes to this stuff, but what have your general impressions been with these interviews? As an independent news media company uh, who seeks to deepen our collaboration with many of the mainstream uh, news providers out there that I might comment on here, I got to pick my words carefully. But I was surprised at how quickly it got established that CapVision was an international or even U.S. company. And the way that that worked was... One very respectable outlet reported that first. Everybody else read that and assumed they'd done more work than they'd done, went to the English version of CapVision's website, and were like, well, must be a US company, and just kind of moved on. No one really dug deep on the company at all to to know anything about it. That was surprising. I mean, maybe I'm expecting way too much. As a former due diligence practitioner, it's like, how could you assume anything, <laughs> you know, is true just because you read it right. on their website. Right. Um, but you know, that, that surprised me. And even once I started telling these people the reality, uh, the reporting wasn't changing. And even some of the pieces I was quoted in continued to just like get fundamental facts wrong. So I was a little surprised by that. All right. So, all right. So another thing that I observed is how, focused the reporters are on getting their piece out and participating in the rush of the news cycle. There's a saying in academia, I don't know exactly how it goes, but it's something to the effect of like publish or die (laughs) or something. Publish or perish. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. There we go. That sounds a little better. Um, Publish or perish. And I feel like there's something similar that applies to reporters because they would they would call me and we'd talk and then I'd read what would come out 12 or 24 hours later. And it was just so incredibly reduced down. Uh, The example from this morning that came to mind is that FT reported uh, and maybe others too, but the one I read was in the FT overnight that Forrester research is going to ax a bunch of China jobs. And if you read Hmm. the statements by Forrester, They say it's because of an overall unfavorable global business environment for them. And I think if you dig more deeply, you'll see that like there have been talks of a repositioning and a reorg for them for a while now. And they just reported results recently and, and they were, you know, losing ground on a couple key financial metrics. And the FT article says, 
Um, Forrester researched to axe China jobs after Beijing's consultant crackdown. Now, literally, it is after it. <laughs> the announcement is after sure. the crackdown. That there's a causal imputation. Yeah, but there, that's right? the thing, man. And so, look, I mean, is something going on? Did what has happened recently in China play any role in Forrester's decision? Yeah, probably. I mean, it, it couldn't have not come up in their conversations. But at the same time, any consulting company I know that's deeply committed to China is not even considering doing anything different. I've talked to them, anyone I know in that space in the past two weeks, and there's no consideration of them leaving China, not because of risks and not because of a bad couple of years of financial performance. And so, you know, Forrester's own comments on it in their official statements say it's because of other reasons. And the reporting on it is really working hard to make it meet the narrative that's already prevailing. And, you know, speaking of management consultancies, I mean, no one ever got fired for hiring McKinsey. If the deal goes bad anyway, it's like, well, I hired McKinsey. <laughs> what could I have done? Right. But you get you get fired for going the contrarian route. And I feel like there's a lot of that prevailing in the reporting on China these days. Hmm. Ah, well, welcome to our world. <laughs> Finally see how the sausage gets made in this place. <laughs> hey, see, that wasn't that bad, right? Um, you know, you survived your first Seneca ordeal. Exactly. Uh, I made yeah. it. Hey, you know, um, but that was fun. I think that was, uh, it was great and, and, and so timely and, and what a fantastic coincidence that, you know, this guy I work with happens to be the same guy I want to interview for. <laughs> so, um. We'll certainly have you back on for other things, like you know, to talk about uh, all the other companies in China that you've worked for that get in trouble in the future. So, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Fortunately, there was only one other, and that was a, a overseas consulting firm. But I don't think they'll be getting in trouble anytime soon. Touchwood. All right, hey, let's move on to recommendations. Before we do, um, you know, hey, why don't I give this plug to you? Why don't you you tell tell people why they should be uh, signing up for Access? Per our conversation just now, there's simply no one way to understand China. There are many things going on in China, often at the same time. And I believe that our platform, reading our platform consistently, is one of the best ways to get exposed to more of the things going on in China on any given day of the week. And so if you really want to know what's going on in China go become a subscriber, become a paid subscriber and uh, give it an earnest try, read as often as you can. And if at the end of it, you don't think you're learning enough more about China to be worth the subscription fee, you can always cancel. All right. Good earnest uh, plug for us. No, I, 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 I totally agree. And, and also you, you get this show early. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, super important, yeah. by the way. All right. Hey, Bob. So let's move on to recommendations. Uh, what do you have for us this week? All right. So I just finished reading a book that took a lot of commitment to get through, but I couldn't more highly recommend. <laughs> Great recommendation. Yeah. Already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not for the faint of heart. It's true. Uh, it's like 600 pages or something. It's called Energy and Civilization, A History by Vaclav Smil. And it traces energy writ large from the sun and like the primordial ooze of earth at the beginning, all the way through to wind, solar, uh, nuclear, and the other aspects of the modern energy transition. My favorite part on that historical path was the American horse, 
which apparently is really what gave America a literal leg up on Europe and other parts of the world at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The American horse is just huh. so much more powerful and efficient of a draft animal than almost anything else out there. And yet it wasn't a straight shot to success because the horses actually eat a hell of a lot more food. And so you had to plan much more carefully to maintain your, uh, your stable um, and uh, to make sure there was enough food for them to get through the winter as well as all the, the humans. But in any case, a fascinating book from start to finish. And if you think you know about the energy transition, I think that you will feel differently after reading this amazingly researched book. All right, great. But, you know, 600 pages is a little daunting. I, I haven't done a musical recommendation in, in, in a, a while now, so I'm going to do that. So um, I just took a really long drive last week up and back to Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, one of my best friends from college went along for the ride, you know, to share driving and everything. But uh, we, you know, as you can imagine, listened to a lot of music on the way. And um, one album that, that we, we, we spun, which I hadn't listened to forever, I mean, it had been a long time, was the debut album from Mr. Bungle which is a band that's um, fronted by Mike Patton, who's maybe better known for Faith No More uh, from the early 90s or late 80s. It is a really warped, warped record, and it's hard to believe it's been like over 30 years since it came out. I think it's like 1991. Uh, it's got like every genre imaginable. I mean, it's it's got ska and metal and and circus crazy clown music and um, and and kind of freeform jazz it's it's everything it's all it's a nutty nutty album and you know there's some pretty dark dark stuff on it also some kind of juvenile stuff on it too so come on don't judge me based on this but it, it i gotta say no musician will listen to this and not recognize that there's some serious talent and 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 expansive imagination at work on this record so mr bungle's debut record anyway i Drove home for like 19 hours yesterday, and and uh, I did most of the driving, so I'm just knackered right now. So if I'm sounding spacey, it's because I barely slept last night. But anyway, Bob, what a what a treat, man! That was a ton of fun. Thanks, dude. Hopefully, I uh, have another legitimate reason to come back to prevent me from you know usurping <laughs> my executive powers to be here more often. We'll create one for you <laughs> if you can't find one. Great. All right. Thanks, Bob. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at The China Project. And be sure to check out all the shows in The Seneca Network. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.